cold morning to get going here. We're going to be looking at a section of Isaiah that is called the book of Emmanuel, and that is the chapters 7 through 12. This is called the book of Emmanuel because several times uh, uh, within this section of Isaiah, there are things that are said that relate to Emmanuel. And of course, it's in this section that we have that famous passage of the birth of Emmanuel and then the description of his name. His name shall be called and then the descriptions of his names that are mentioned here. these, These are found right here in this section of Isaiah. So that's why people have called this section the book of Emmanuel and other things that are said in here that relate to the activities uh, of the Messiah, the Emmanuel. And so uh, we'll be looking specifically at two two prominent passages here in this section that uh, relate to Emmanuel. Uh, Let's go ahead and begin our class then with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that we can come here again this morning and to turn our attention to your holy word, and we pray that you'll be with us as we uh, read these words. We pray that you'll open our eyes and open our hearts to the message that is contained in these words. We pray that uh, these words will encourage us and will point us in the right way in which we should go, and especially above all that we might learn to appreciate more and more your greatness, and your love for us. We're so grateful for the love that you have given to us in the sending of your Son into this world. And we pray that we'll be able to learn more and more about uh, the sacrifice that he made in our behalf, and that uh, through him we can call upon you for the remission of our sins. And we're thankful that he was willing to shed his blood, that we can have the remission of our sins. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, this first page, you can more or less over uh, the first page of this handout. By the way, there are two handouts. Uh, there's one here and the one that uh, ha- is a reproduction of an article from Restoration Quarterly that we'll look at a little bit later on. But uh, this first page is another example of someone suggesting as a chiasmus for this uh, uh, section of Isaiah. In fact, for the whole section of Isaiah from chapter 1 through chapter 12. And you can look over here and see, see whether or not you think that these uh, lines parallel each other. <clears throat> and it, you can see that it leads, uh, leads from the top to the middle to D, and then from the bottom up to D. And D is the center, according to this uh, arrangement of these chapters, uh, uh, in uh, this section of Isaiah, chapter 6. Now, chapter 6 is often regarded as the call and commission of Isaiah. And uh, uh, questions are raised sometimes. Why is it placed here in chapter 6 if this is his call and commission? Why isn't it placed right at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, his call and his commission? Well, maybe this... Uh, type of looking at the arrangement of these chapters might explain why chapter 6 is placed where it is. The, how the, the, the passages around uh, chapter 6 lead up to and then lead down from the center of uh, 
this chapter. Well, this is one suggestion on how you can look at the arrangement and the structure of these uh, uh, chapters from, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12. Now, if you turn to chapter 12, you'll see that at the end of chapter 12, there is a, a break in the thought and a break, uh, break in the subject matter. Because beginning with the verse uh, uh, chapter 13, <clears throat> you see there's a prophecy concerning Babylon. And here begins a section of Isaiah that has to do with foreign nations and what God through Isaiah is saying to these foreign nations. So here there, there seems to be a clear break in the subject matter and, uh, between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Chapter 12 kind of kind of closes this section of Isaiah in, in a song of praise. Now, I think it would be good just going, this isn't very long, only six, chapter, only six verses long in chapter 12. And it's one of the great songs that is found in the Old Testament. It could go right along with the book of Psalms. And um, it's, since it's only six verses, let's go ahead and read uh, this uh, the song of praise at the end of this section of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 12. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord, although you were angry with me. Your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. And proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. So you can see how this, this chapter is a song of praise to the Lord, and it is a fitting conclusion to this section of Isaiah. So that's one suggestion on how, how we can look at these chapters here. Uh, all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 12 and ending on this great uh, note of praise and, and uh, a song of, of praise to, to, to the Lord. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> this first page then suggests uh, how that uh, these uh, chapters here in the first part of Isaiah might be arranged in the form of a chiasmus. But what we want to look at is this particular section that we're calling the... Uh, Book of Emmanuel, because uh, there's so much uh, that is related in here about the uh, <clears throat> the role of Emmanuel and the things that he he will be uh, engaged in and the description of Emmanuel. Uh, <clears throat> chapter seven, then, and just the, just the uh, real briefly to summarize the the background or the the. Uh, a context in which uh, this is presented here. You have the first few verses of chapter 7 describing the historical situation. <clears throat> when Ahaz, son of Jothan, son of Uzziah... Now, if, uh, you re- if you're requ- acquainted with chapter 6, you, you know that uh, 
Chapter 6 begins, in the year the king Uzziah died. And that chapter 6 is often regarded as the call and commission of Isaiah, that Isaiah began his prophetic career in the year the king Uzziah died. So now Ahaz, the son of Jothan, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah. And what was happening in the world situation at this time was that Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel got together to unite their forces to resist the threat from the Assyrian Empire. Now, sometimes it gets a little bit confusing. You have Syria and then you have Assyria. They're two, two different nations. Assyria is closer to Israel, the northern kingdom, than Assyria is quite a ways away to the north and to the east mainly uh, to the east uh, of, uh, of the territory. But uh, Assyria was rising in power and threatening uh, the nations around them. And Assyria, throughout the rest of, uh, through a great deal of Isaiah, Assyria is a, a main foreign country that uh, uh, he is concerned with and he, that he has uh, prophecies relating to. So, in order to resist the threats of Assyria, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel got together and wanted to unite their forces. And they wanted also to try to persuade the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, to join with them to resist the forces of Assyria. And so <clears throat> they uh, uh, threatened to attack the southern kingdom of, of Judah and uh, the word gets uh, gets uh, to the king of Ahaz, the king of of uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, Ahaz. And when he learns that they're uh, threatening to come and invade uh, their, uh, his country, Ahaz becomes greatly alarmed and greatly afraid. And so God instructs Isaiah to go to Ahaz and to confront him and and to encourage him and to. Uh, Promise him that nothing will happen from this. That these uh, these two kingdoms of of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are nothing but two uh, logs that are about burnt out, and they will soon will soon be extinguished. And so <clears throat> Isaiah encourages Ahaz not to be afraid of these two nations that are threatening to come to invade your land because it will not happen. And in this context then, Ahaz is given the opportunity to ask for a sign. What sign would you like to see in order to show you that uh, nothing is going to happen and that you do not need to be afraid uh, of this invasion and Ahaz then <clears throat> refuses to name a sign, <clears throat> perhaps uh, pretending to be pious. Yeah, I, I don't want to tempt God. I don't want to bring, um, force him to make a sign. So I will not demand a sign. Well, in response then, the Lord says, okay, then I will give you a sign. And this sign is the sign that is uh, given to us in verses, uh, <clears throat> verses uh, uh, 13 and 14, 
Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? And then verse 14, the famous passage here. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, this is one of the most famous messianic passages that is found in Isaiah. <clears throat> but there's a couple of chapters later in chapter 9, there is another description of uh, Emmanuel uh, that is in chapter 9, verses uh, 6, uh, verse 6, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A number of years ago, when we were living in California, the uh, <clears throat> Hayward uh, State College uh, presented a performance of Handel's Messiah. And uh, in Handel's Messiah, there is a chorus that, uh, <clears throat> that is based on this passage right here in Isaiah chapter 9, Unto Us a Child is Born. Marilyn and I both, uh, they are offered the opportunity of anyone in the community who wanted to join in the singing of the, uh, in that performance of the Messiah uh, would, would be welcome to come and join the chorus. Marilyn and I both sang in the chorus of that performance of the Messiah. And this is the musical score from which, uh, which we sang uh, in, in that performance. And the, uh, the song, uh, one of the choruses in, in the Messiah is uh, this, uh, <clears throat> this uh, chorus that's uh, based on these passages here. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's based on the King James Version of, the, of, of this verse. Um, <clears throat> If you know anything about the Messiah, you know that a good deal of the Messiah is taken directly from the book of Isaiah in the King James Version, wondering of it. And that, if you look at the King James Version, you'll see that there's a common inserted between the word wonderful and counselor. So it says, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, making it be five names. But uh, as you see in the NIV and uh, most of the more recent translations, they eliminate that comma between wonderful and counselor and make it just simply one name. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that seems to fit in better with the flow of the uh, language and, <clears throat> and the rhythm that is presented. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So... <clears throat> <clears throat> the King James Version and the Messiah uh, kind of uh, breaks that up and make it, makes it into five names rather than four names, as the NIV does it in most uh, recent uh, translations, uh, indicated as being a, a, a one designation of the, of the Emmanuel. He is be a wonderful counselor. And if we had time, we could look at each one of these and see the significance and what the meaning of each of these designations. 
some do not even recognize these as actually names of the Emmanuel, the Messiah, but simply as descriptions of his activity, the descriptions of his work. He's going to serve as a wonderful counselor. He's going to be regarded as mighty God and even the everlasting Father. And, of course, he will be known as the Prince of Peace, as we know from the New Testament description of the coming of the Messiah, that uh, he will be called the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Okay, let's go back to this uh, chapter 7, verse 14, because there's been so much said about uh, the wording of this uh, particular uh, passage. Uh, The virgin, as the King James Version has it, and the New American Standard Version has it, the, the virgin will be with child and will uh, give birth to a son and will call her, his name Emmanuel. <clears throat> I'm sure you're aware of the fact that the Revised Standard Version, when it came out, it did not have the word virgin. It said, a young woman shall conceive and bear a child. And when this happened, a great deal of discussion arose about uh, whether or not it should be rendered this way. Uh, the TEV also has uh, uh, the expression, a young woman, rather than a version. It says, that a young woman who is pregnant, and then it goes on the rest of the verse. But in a footnote in the TEV, the t- today's English version, footnote says, the Hebrew word here translated young woman is not the particular term for virgin but refers to any young woman of marital age. And that's why the RSV uses the, the term, uh, a, a young woman shall conceive. The use of virgin in Matthew chapter one twenty three. Now, v- Matthew clearly uses a word that means virgin. And when he refers to this passage, he says, as the prophet said, a virgin shall conceive. Uh, the, the footnote in the TEV goes on to say, the use of virgin in Matthew one twenty three reflects a Greek translation of the Old Testament made some 500 years after Isaiah. And then the, the TEV uh, goes on to say in its uh, footnote that uh, this version here in Matthew chapter 1, uh, 22 and 23, uh, as now all this happened in order to make come true what the Lord has said through the prophet, a virgin will become pregnant and have a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. Now, it is true that the word that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter 1 is the technical Greek word for virgin. And so when the RSV came out with the translation saying, a young woman, oh, they were all upset and disturbed because uh, they thought that the, <clears throat> this was a, a wrong translation of that word there. So a great deal of, of uh, <clears throat> discussion and uh, thought uh, grew up over the meaning of this original word that appears here in Isaiah, uh, chapter 7, verse 14. The original word is the Greek word uh, alma, A-L-M-A-H, as you see in the top of page 3 of the, of the handout. The original word that is translated uh, virgin or young woman is the word Alma, A-L-M-A-H. 
and appears a total of seven times in the entire Old Testament. And it might be uh, worthwhile to briefly notice where this word appears and how it is translated in these other passages. In Genesis 23, 43, applied to Rebekah, uh, the future bride of Isaac, is translated as maiden in the NIV. In Exodus 2, 8, Miriam, uh, the sister of Moses, uh, and there the NIV translates as girl. In Psalm 68, 25, it refers to the maidens who are playing the tambourines. In the Song of Solomon 1, 3, uh, the maidens love you. And also in so- Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 8, virgins beyond measure. Proverbs 13, uh, 30, 19, the way of a man with a maiden. And then the seventh place where it appears in the Old Testament is this passage right here in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So according to the NIV, the way it translates to the word Alma, it would suggest that it can be translated either as girl or maiden or virgin, depending on the context and what is being, uh, being described there. Okay, that's the situation that we find here in the... Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. A virgin will be with child, or a young woman will be with child, so which should it be? And this has uh, brought about a great deal of discussion on the meaning of this original word here, Hebrew. So what I've done is I've <clears throat> included a lengthy uh, uh, comments from uh, two of the major uh, commentaries that we've been using in the course of this study. Uh, the commentary written by Burton, James Burton Kaufman, and also the commentary written by Homer Haley. And uh, these first um, uh, quotations here are from Burton's uh, commentary on, the, on Isaiah. And he comes out very strongly on the side that it should be translated as virgin, uh, basically because that's the term that Matthew uses when he refers to this passage. Um, so he's very strong on the side of it. The proper translation should be virgin and not young, young woman. Uh, <clears throat> I particularly do not care for the way that Kaufman words some of his uh, uh, objections to uh, opposing views. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's, let's just look at a couple of the statements that he makes here in the... Um, in regard to this passage, he points out that this is one of the most discussed and debated in the entire Old Testament. Um, and he is, uh, begins by admitting right off that he thinks that the true prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ our Lord is, is found right here in Isaiah seven fourteen. Uh, <clears throat> But then notice at the end of that first uh, statement from prophet, he says, Objections that evil and unbelieving men have made against this view. And here are the reasons for our own confidence and true meaning of the prophets. Well, I don't know. He might be going a little bit too far by calling these translators as evil and unbelieving men. Were they really evil men because of the way they translated this, uh, uh, this word? He goes on to say that uh, 
and that the prophecy does not say a version, but the version. And that's true. The original does have the definite article, the, and not simply a, a woman, but the virgin. Um, and then in the uh, middle of that paragraph, he says, the silly objection that the ultimate fulfillment of this was far removed to do Ahaz any good is worthless. There, the terminology uh, I have a little bit of objection to when he refers to them as a silly objection. Um, and then at the end of that paragraph, he says that... Uh, <clears throat> that the idea that uh, this uh, is referring to a young woman <clears throat> is ridiculous. The sign was for the house of David, not for Ahaz. Um, and then he goes on at the bottom of that page where he refers to Matthew, and he says, How arrogant and conceited modern seminarian has any right or ability, whatever, to contradict the testimony of the inspired apostle of Jesus Christ. So again, that terminology, the arrogant and conceited modern seminarian. Um, then on page four, he, this is still Kaufman uh, making his comments here in regard to this verse. Now, what about the word Alma? Does it not have possible meaning of a young woman? And could the allegation of unbelievers such as... Uh, Author S. Peak be true. This is a com- an old, one of the older commentaries on, on Isaiah, in which uh, he said, this is, this is what Peak has said, Arthur Peak, the rendering virgin here is unjustifiable. The Hebrew word employed here means a young woman, a marriage of a marriageable age, without any suggestion that she is not married. And the reference is, is made there. And then Kaufman goes on to, to say that, to begin with, this alleged meeting of Alma is a disputed matter. But even if the critical rendition of it should be allowed, it could not possibly obscure the true meaning of the word, which is virgin. Um, and then the uh, beginning of the next paragraph, he says, the fact apparently is unknown to the critical enemies of God's word. There again, are they really enemies of God's word? Is, is that a little bit too strong to describe uh, these as being enemies of God's word? Um, so he says, let's look at the next paragraph. Let's look at the uses of Alma. And he says, we are indebted to Homer Haley for the following summary of the usage of Alma in God's word. And uh, a little bit later, I have the quotation from Homer Haley, where he discusses the meaning of the word Alma. But here, and here is where Kaufman includes this quotation from Homer Haley. But then Kaufman adds, Remember that there is no biblical examples of where the word Alma ever referred to anyone except a virgin in the usual sense of the word. And that accounts for the existence of, of the next argument we shall cite here, and that's the argument number four that he has down here. And that, in summary, is simply a, a reference to the Septuagint, the um, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in which the word that they use as a translation of the word Alma is the word, the technical Greek word for virgin. And that's why Matthew uses that same word when he quotes this passage from Isaiah, the Greek word that is found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Uh, 
that quotation right in the middle is the uh, translation of the uh, Greek translation. <laughs> Get all these translations in here. <clears throat> From the Septuagint, it, it says, O house of David, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the womb and shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. And then Kaufman says that the great scholars who gave us the Hebrew Bible in the Greek language translated the Hebrew Alma with the word that evil men, he refers to them as evil men, could not possibly understand. And we believe that no group of scholars has yet appeared in human history that outranks the ability and quality of the famed 70 who translated the Septuagint. No doctor conceit, no doctor smart, no doctor anybody else has learned any more about the Hebrew tongue than has most commonly known as the uh, translators of the Septuagint version of the Bible. So in the light of this, we, we are absolutely certain that the correct translation of the RSV, that the current translation of the RSV, betrayed the faith when they translated Alma with what is most surely a bastard rendition. I hope that word doesn't offend any of you, but that's the word he used here, refer to this. <clears throat> when they, uh, he, uh, as, uh, this is how he describes the translation, the RSV, <clears throat> that uh, <clears throat> when they translated it as uh, a young woman, uh, I, uh, I, left the word all, I left the word woman off, off of that there. He said the second line on page five there at the end of the line, it's a young it should be young woman. <clears throat> and then it goes on to say in regard to the RSV, there is no reason whatever to respect such an erroneous translation. The 20th century AD is not the era in which anyone may expect to find any new information about the meaning of Hebrew words used uh, 2,800 years earlier. And then this final comment from Burton Kaufman on number five. This is his fifth fifth reason for believing that it should be rendered as virgin. <clears throat> Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. <clears throat> and he goes on to make comments about, about that. Uh, so... <clears throat> And then he has a discussion of uh, the idea that, well, could there possibly have been two fulfillments? The idea that there was a fulfillment of this passage in the days of Isaiah and Ahaz, and also another fulfillment or a fuller fulfillment in the days of Jesus, when Jesus was born. That it was assigned to Ahaz, and the ultimate remote fulfillment was realized in Christ. And he says that this view is attractive. He says there, there, there is some reason to believe that this, this could be a way to approach this passage, a double fulfillment of this passage. And he refers to a couple of passages in which this actually does take place in regard to um, prophecy in the Old Testament as re, and referred to in the New Testament. <clears throat> and he says that some very respected commentators have accepted this view, the idea that there being a double fulfillment. Um, there are several considerations that are contrary to this interpretation. And he goes on and talks that uh, it is not just a child, but a very special person named Emmanuel. So that's why he, he rejects this idea of a double fulfillment. 
Furthermore, he says the text indicates that the prophecy was not to Ahaz at all, but to the house of David. Ahaz had already refused any sign from God. So if he's going to refuse the sign to God, he will not get a sign from God. The sign is given to the house of David, not to Ahaz. <clears throat> and uh, 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 this is brought out in the fact that the word you, uh, <clears throat> Lord himself will give you a sign, that that word you is in plural, not singular. He's not talking to Ahaz. He's talking to the house of, of uh, the house of Israel. He will, uh, he will give you plural a sign. Of course, that, that the problem with the English is that the word you can be understood as both singular and plural. So you can't tell just by the word itself whether it should be regarded as a singular you or a plural you. You just have to either be acquainted with the meaning of the original language or tell by the context whether it's referring to you singular or to you plural. Well, here the original language clearly is a plural. So he's talking about you, plural. That is the whole house of Israel, not just Ahaz. The Lord himself will give you, the house of Israel, a sign. So uh, Kaufman emphasizes this this meaning of the, of the word you. Uh, <clears throat> um, and I have the reference uh, to these quotations at the bottom of page 5 from his uh, commentary on, on uh, Isaiah. Then the next uh, uh, couple of pages, uh, the next page has a, a couple of quotations from Homer Haley's commentary on Isaiah. And he points out uh, that the, there's been a long controversy over the meaning of the term virgin. Uh, uh, and he, he emphasized that it is the virgin, the definite article, the is uh, used, used here. Uh, and it, the middle, uh, toward the middle of, the, uh, of his quotation, page 6, the Revised Standard Version translates the Hebrew as young woman and places virgin in the margin. Even if both translations are liable, virgin should be in the text proper. The, word, the Hebrew word is the Alma, as we mentioned, Occurs six times in addition to this passage here in Isaiah, and he lists these six pa- uh, these six additional passages where the word appears and, and points out uh, as we did just a, a few moments ago, and the different places where this word is found. And then he concludes uh, that paragraph by saying, "In each case, it appears that the word is used to indicate a virgin of marriageable or pre-marriageable age." A young woman who is neither married nor had known a man. Additional evidence that the emphasis in Isaiah is on a special, unmarried, chaste maiden is the use of the definite article in both the Hebrew and the Septuagint text, the virgin. Despite the attempt to prove otherwise, the word seems never to be used of a married woman or of an immoral woman. So he comes down on the side that it should be translated as virgin and not young woman. And then the following uh, paragraph, he, he goes into uh, he, uh, some example of trying to identify who this, this young woman is, or who is the woman being referred to here. Um, <clears throat> so we won't read those, but you can look those over if, if, you, if you want to. 
and then uh, page 7, uh, further comment from Homer Hagelin. So virgin is the correct rendering of the word Alma, and then the Messiah is the son who fulfilled that promise. Okay, the second handout then, uh, I made copies of an article that appeared in the Restoration Quarterly at the end of last year, third quarter of 2017. Uh, you can see that the uh, fourth article that is listed here on the table of content is Churches of Christ in Isaiah 7.14. And uh, then the article begins on the second page here. Uh, Churches of Christ in Isaiah 7.14, written by John Davis Jones. And notice it says that he's from Freed Hardeman University. It's generally recognized that Freed Hardeman University is one of the more conservative Christian schools in Churches of Christ. So uh, he does come from the standpoint of a strong belief in the inspiration of scriptures and that uh, <clears throat> that the uh, translation of the scriptures into English uh, must be uh, as accurate as possible. He reviews how churches of Christ, leaders in churches of Christ, that, that is preachers and writers and, and editors of papers and and professors at our Christian colleges, what they have said about the meaning of this passage here in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And he approaches this from a historical standpoint by looking at it from three historical periods. And the first period is what he calls the period prior to the publishing of the RSVE. That is, that is pre-1952. And he goes all the way back to Alexander Campbell and has some things to say about what Alexander Campbell regarded as the meaning of, of this word. And then uh, he also re- re- refers the bottom of page 176 to J.W. McGarvey. Now, if you're acquainted with the Restoration history, you know that that name is one of the main names in the history of the Restoration movement, J.W. McGarvey. Uh, and he had some things to say about the meaning of this word uh, on the next, uh, next couple of pages. Uh, the bottom of page 177, he mentions that uh, five years later, however, the premillennial churches of Christ began advocating the Jesus-only uh, position as a reaction to modernists and... Uh, uh, Jews who rejected the virgin birth of Christ. So early discussion in churches of Christ actually began with the premillennial churches of Christ. And then on the next page, page 178, he uh, uh, talks about the, the fallout from the RSV. That is uh, from 1952 to 1959 and uh, various um, ones uh, that react to the RSV translation of this as a young woman. Uh, the, 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 the bottom uh, paragraph on that page, 178, says, Most authors and churches of Christ attempted to answer the new translation in two ways, two approaches to the RSV. First, they said that the word Alma must be translated virgin because of the authority of the inspired apostle Matthew, who also uh, who used the word, the technical word for a virgin, when he said, as the prophet said, a virgin shall conceive. 
So that's one approach that was used in Churches of Christ <clears throat> to uh, respond to the RSVP. Then the second, uh, the bottom of that paragraph, secondly, these authors presume that the signs spoken of must have been miraculous. That is, the virgin birth of Christ. Therefore, it must be translated as virgin. Uh, these uh, answers unanimously omitted the original context of Isaiah's prophecy, that this was meant to be assigned to Ahaz, not to an audience living uh, 750 years later. So that's how some in churches of Christ have, have approached this. Um, so at the top of page 179, there are a group of individuals in Church of Christ who believe that this is solely fulfilled in Christ and no one else. Um, um, then he refers to the middle of that page. He says that a few years of relative silence in the discussion of this passage. Then John McRae uh, wrote an article in the Restoration Quarterly that gave an honest appraisal of the situation. And this is a quotation from his article in the, the Restoration The virgin birth of Jesus is not denied by the translators as being New Testament doctrine, which is evident from the rendering Parthenos as virgin in the New Testament translation. Uh, it was simply felt that the Hebrew Alma would best be translated by the English young woman. So that's why we have the RSV young woman rather than virgin. McGray also makes a point that did not seem to have been considered by any of the authors that preceded him that there is scholarly no there is absolutely no evidence that there's any first century expectation of a messianic virgin birth. And it seems from the lack of articles in the next decade that no one had a response to McRae's reasonable claims. Then the third historical period is the uh, translation discussion uh, <clears throat> from 1971 uh, to the present. <clears throat> and this is what we, what we have uh, in the next few pages here in this article about how, how it was discussed. Um, some referred to this, uh, this idea of a double fulfillment as uh, double talk. And then the, uh, uh, the last uh, couple of sentences of that uh, paragraph, the top page 180, he refers to Cecil N. Wright, uh, while lecturing to Fried Hardeman, was asked to prepare Sunday school material that happened to include Isaiah 7.14. When he suggested that Matthew might be using a double fulfillment view, the editor refused to publish even that possibility. Now, I mention this because Cecil N. Wright is Marilyn's father, my father-in-law. And uh, <clears throat> he, the gospel advocate uh, wrote lesson materials to be used in Bible classes, and along with that material... To be used in Bible classes, they also published a commentary on those verses that were going to be, uh, be discussed. Well, Cecil Wright wrote the commentary on this particular section of the uh, study from the Gospel Advocate. And he wrote in the commentary that he thought that the idea of a double fulfillment, one fulfillment in the days of Isaiah and another fulfillment in the days of Jesus Christ, um, 
uh, might be a possibility. Well, the editor refused to accept that explanation and refused to publish uh, to, in the, the commentary that he wrote that particular statement. So, let, uh, yeah, talking about, I want to bring this to a close by noting the final paragraph of the article on page 181, where it refers to Jack Lewis, that last paragraph there on the bottom, page 181. Jack Lewis, <clears throat> one of our leading Old Testament scholars in Churches of Christ, longtime professor at the Harding Graduate School of Religion, now known as the Harding School of Theology, in which he said, <clears throat> in his writing and lecturing, continued this trend of academic integrity coupled with the high respect of Scripture. Lewis was the first writer in Churches of Christ to examine extra-biblical texts for Alma. He found that these other texts confirmed the theory that Alma had no intrinsic relation to virginity. He also proved that even in Isaiah uh, chapter 8 and chapter 18, sign does not necessarily uh, indicate miraculous involvement. In a later book, Lewis contributes again to the discussion with archaeological evidence from the, uh, from the Bible lands that shows that names similar to Emmanuel were common in Isaiah's time period, giving evidence to the possibility that Isaiah referred to a young woman in the time of, Isaiah, uh, of Ahaz and uh, Isaiah too, of course. So there's that article if you want to pursue that and see what others have said about the meaning of the word Alma in Isaiah chapter 7, 14. You can, you can do that. So that's why I uh, reproduce that article. So if you want to pursue it on, on your own, you could. Okay. That very quickly is a... <clears throat> is an account of uh, the Emmanuel passage that is one of the more familiar passages in Isaiah. Okay, yeah, we're past time. We need to, need to come to a close. Um, next Sunday is going to be our last session in this uh, uh, study of uh, selected topics from the book of Isaiah, studies in Isaiah. In that last session... Uh, I. What I'd like to do is look at passages in the, uh, in the book of Isaiah that talk about God as being the God of all time, the God of the present, the God of the, of God of the past, the God of the present, and the God of the future. So next week we'll be looking at uh, Isaiah's uh, description of the God of all time. So, yeah, we need to start uh, breaking up and getting ready for our worship service. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and have a brief... Uh, brief word of prayer as we close. Our Father, we're thankful that uh, you've allowed us to assemble and to uh, consider some of the things that you have said in your word. We ask that you'll be with us now as we assemble to worship, and we pray that our worship be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.